Hello everyone, welcome or welcome back to another episode of the Ticket Podcast, brought to you in partnership with Pulse by Public.com, providing tools for IR teams to engage with retail shareholders. I'm your host, Noemi Di Stefano. On the show this month, we speak to Robert Shore, Vice President of Investor Relations and Capital Markets at Gun, a US-based global supplier of casino content, gaming systems and social gaming. We discuss investor targeting and retention, IR strategies, small cap challenges and how to stay afloat and reassure your shareholders when your business is not doing so well. Later in the episode, we talk with our partner Pulse by Public.com to dive into retail shareholders' trends and attitudes in their engagement with IR. But first, earlier this month, the Financial Conduct Authority officially announced a listing regime reform proposal in a bid to boost the attractiveness of the UK market for businesses. Simply put, the FCA is proposing to make the process of listing a company in the UK easier for businesses which are thinking about an IPO. To understand more about what the FCA listing reform proposal entails and what its implications would be if applied, I'm joined by Claire Keyes-Butler, partner at international law firm Cooley. So, Claire, welcome to the Ticker Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the show this month. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Just to introduce myself briefly, I'm Claire Keyes-Butler. I'm a partner at Cooley, focusing on capital markets and public companies work. I have been practicing in the City of London for over 20 years. Um, Historically, done a lot of London Stock Exchange listed work, both listing companies, representing companies once they're listed, if they're looking to to raise more money or enter into significant transactions. Also have worked with a number of UK and European companies accessing the capital markets in the US, and that's been an increasing part of my practice over the past few years, and also with with companies listing on stock exchanges across Europe. Delighted to be discussing this with you today. Thank you. So we are here to discuss the recent FCA proposal announced on the 3rd of May, which seeks to to simplify and make uh, more effective the rules businesses must comply with to list in the UK. So I thought it would be great to get your uh, your, uh, opinion on this, your your comments. So just to start with, what do you think are the key points um, uh, in the FCA's proposal? Just just to start with, this is a bold set of proposals and and it would represent a major overhaul of the UK listing regime, possibly the most significant since the the 1980s, which is certainly a long time before I was practicing. And it is really important and urgent just to set the scene a little bit. You know, we've all read about the high profile setbacks London's had in recent months and the number of listed companies on the London Stock Exchange has fallen more broadly by 40% or so since 2008. So it's clear that London as a listing venue faces significant competition and challenges at this time. And, And we hear this all the time when we're talking to UK and continental European companies that are considering an IPO, when we're talking to them about potential listing venues. 
as a firm and a European practice, we're genuinely listing venue agnostic. We work with companies listing in the US, the UK, and on exchanges across the continent. So we hear these, these perceptions and these views from, from companies you know, a, a, across Europe. While the IPO market is still largely closed at present, it will reopen. And it's important for London, I think, to position itself as well as it possibly can for, for when that reopening comes. As a headline point, I think it's really welcome that the FCA has settled on proposing a single listing category to replace the current standard and premium segments. Um, and just to give you a little bit of the, the background and the history there, the, the existing structure of premium and standard listings has been in place since 2010. Um, so you have the standard listings, which represent what were the EU, the European Union minimum requirements. And then you have premium listings, which have what's called super equivalent requirements uh, with all the additional requirements you traditionally had for a UK primary listing. That distinction, that premium standard segment has caused confusion. Standard listings have always been considered second class. Standard listed companies' shares haven't been eligible for the FTSE UK indices. The FCA, FCA had last year suggested an alternative structure involving a single listing segment with one set of eligibility criteria and mandatory continuing obligations, and then the ability for issuers to opt into a set of supplementary continuing obligations for additional shareholder vote requirements. Um, and that really risked just recreating the premium and standard distinction by a different name. And there was genuinely little enthusiasm from what I saw in the market for those proposals. So having this single listing segment, I think is really important in terms of you know, having something that's straightforward, and easy for people to understand. Uh, there's a couple of changes which I think we'll go on to talk about in, in more detail later on, but changes around the eligibility requirements are really significant, in particular, some of the financial eligibility requirements, which we'll talk about, um, should really help to facilitate London listings by earlier stage companies. And then finally, the removal of the requirement for shareholder approval for certain significant transactions and related party transactions that currently apply for premium listed companies um, and the move to focus on disclosure of such arrangements rather than shareholder approval. That is really welcome, in particular for acquisitive and founder-led companies or for, for companies that are being carved out of a larger group. So they, those are the, the really key changes that I think it's worth highlighting up front. Thank you. And uh, if we look at the, at the implications of the proposed changes for, uh, for companies then, let's start from those companies which are already listed. What would be the implications for those? So for companies with a premium listing that are already listed on, on, on the exchange, um, there will be major changes, in particular when they're entering into significant transactions, including M&A transactions or transactions with related parties such as directors, 10% plus shareholders and their connected persons. Um, and as I mentioned up front, the FCA is proposing to move away from requiring shareholder approval as they have done in the past towards a disclosure focused approach. Um, so just to explain the context here and why this is so significant. So, so currently um, major transactions by premium listed companies that represent 25% or more on one of a number of what, what we call class tests. And these are a number of tests which broadly look to compare the size of the transaction being undertaken with the size of the existing listed company on, on one of a series of measures. If any of those come out above 25%, the transaction requires shareholder approval prior to completion, which itself necessitates an FCA approved circular. Um, and that FCA approved circular has to have certain disclosures in it, in particular, 
for an acquisition, it has to contain three years audited financial information on the target company that's been prepared in accordance with the listed company's existing accounting policy. So for a private target, that can require significant accounting work. Um, so the significant cost involved in preparing this class one circular um, and all of the associated accounting and legal work. And, and perhaps more significantly, these requirements will put listed companies at a significant disadvantage when they're looking at a competitive M&A process. So if you have you know, a listed company that needs to get shareholder approval, needs to prepare this shareholder circular, needs to go through this accounting process versus a private equity bidder that can just sign and close immediately, you can see that the listed company is, is at a disadvantage there. Um, so under these FCA proposals, shareholder approval and the related shareholder circular that's been pre-approved by the FCA, that will no longer be needed. So save where you're doing what's called a reverse takeover, which is where one of these class tests comes out above 100%. So effectively, a company's doing an acquisition which is bigger than they are on one of these measures. Um, there will be no requirement anymore for shareholder approval. Instead, there'll be an announcement required with certain prescribed details on signing, um, as is currently the case for smaller transactions, which we call class two transactions under the current regime. Similarly, the FCA is proposing to do away with mandatory shareholder approval for related party transactions um, and the related requirements for shareholder circulars that have been pre-approved by the FCA. So in this new single listing category that the FCA is proposing, related party transactions over 5% under these class tests would require an announcement containing certain prescribed details, and that would need a fair and reasonable statement being a confirmation by the board that the related party transaction is fair and reasonable insofar as shareholders are concerned and they have to have received advice from an investment bank or broker acting as sponsor to that effect. So while these related party transactions wouldn't need shareholder approval, um, there would, in my view, still be an appropriate level of protection for investors there. Okay. And uh, what about those companies who are uh, thinking about an IPO? Then what would be the, the implications? Companies that are looking to list in the UK will see some significant changes if these rules come into effect to the what we call the eligibility requirements that companies need to meet. Um, effectively, the requirements for this standard listing segment would be aligned here with the less restrictive rules that currently apply for a standard listing. So in particular, I mentioned up front um, the removal of some of the financial eligibility requirements. So while companies will still need to include financial information in their IPO prospectus, um, they don't need any more to demonstrate that they have a three-year financial track record, which represents at least 75% of their business or a revenue earning track record. Those are current requirements to list in the premium segment. Um, and it's hoped that this will lead to earlier stage, more innovative companies, um, including those in the technology and life sciences sectors, being able and wanting to list in London. Another key part of it is the FCA proposing to modify certain of the eligibility requirements that focus on premium listed companies carrying out an independent business as their main activity, and also that they exercise operational control over their business. Um, so this new single listing category is proposed to be more flexible, um, and that's expected to remove barriers to models like franchise type business models or um, companies which make minority investments in other entities that at present wouldn't be eligible for a premium listing. Finally, I, th I think we'll talk in more detail uh, later on on dual class share structures, but 
uh, which is which is a, a key area and one that's getting a lot of attention. Um, the FCA is proposing to allow a more flexible approach for dual class share structures than's currently available for a premium listing, although it's more restrictive than the current standard segment. And that's that's a key change and, and very relevant, certainly for technology companies that, that we're talking to that are considering where to list. If we talk about compliance um, challenges, what, what would you say are the biggest compliance challenges for companies? Maybe if you had like a top uh, three list or as many as you want. So I think for, for premium listed companies, so existing premium listed companies, you know, the, the rules are only being relaxed in certain areas. So there shouldn't be yeah. any major compliance challenges there. Um, for companies that have a standard listing, you know, some of these requirements for this new single listing segment, if it comes in as, as the FCA is currently proposing, will be new. So for example, the specific disclosure requirements around significant transactions that we discussed, although Frankly, if you're doing a large M&A transaction, you need to disclose that anyway. So the, the real compliance burden is, is minimal. Similarly, with related party transactions, there'll be some additional compliance burden there, but you know, significant related party transactions by standard listed companies already need to be disclosed. One, one change for standard listed companies um, that, that, that's different from now is um, they will have to seek shareholder approval to, to delist, um, whereas at the moment that only applies for a premium listed company. So the requirement to get 75% shareholder approval you know, and a higher threshold if you have a controlling shareholder, that, that will be new for standard listed companies. Um, I think the most significant thing here would be the proposal from the FCA to apply the existing requirements for companies to comply with the UK Corporate Governance Code or yeah. explain non-compliance in their annual report um, to come to all companies within this new single listing category. So currently that only applies to premium listed companies, not standard listed companies. So for standard listed companies, there's going to be a need to look at their board and governance arrangements and potentially change those or consider where they're comfortable making a, you know, an explanation of non-compliance. Um, we are expecting there to be a transitional period um, after these rules come into effect, which will allow standard listed companies time to prepare and implement any necessary changes. So, so overall, there will be some changes for standard listed companies, but we largely see that as manageable and, and, and not a, a major change in the compliance burden. Okay, thank you. And if we look at this from uh, issuers and investors' perspective, what are the advantages and disadvantages of these proposed FCA changes for for uh, for them? So generally speaking, other than what we just spoke about, the additional burden yeah. for companies with an existing standard listing, um, I would say that the proposed rule changes are, are really very advantageous for issuers. There's not a lot to say that is a disadvantage for them. Um, in particular, the move away from requiring shareholder approval for significant transactions and related party transactions towards a disclosure-based approach is you know, a big change and is, is very attractive. I would say on the other side of the coin for investors, um, the FCA itself acknowledges in the consultation paper that these changes will mean passing greater investment risk to investors and greater responsibility to shareholders to hold the companies they own to account. Um, ultimately, you know, investors can choose whether or not to invest in a particular company based on its public disclosures at IPO or subsequently, and can always sell their shares if they don't approve of a particular transaction that's been disclosed by an issuer or you know, seek to, seek to engage with the issuer on that. The one area where that isn't the case is, is for passive funds that track the FTSE indices. Um, and that leads us to a, a sort of side point, but I think a key point about 
index eligibility under this new regime. So currently only premium listed companies are eligible for inclusion in the UK indices, including the FTSE 100 and the FTSE 250. And these indices are not run by the FCA, they're operated by FTSE Russell, which is a subsidiary of the London Stock Exchange. Um, and it's unclear at this point what approach FTSE Russell will take here, whether they'll just accept that all companies listed in this single listing segment can go into the indices or are eligible for the indices, or whether they're going to try and impose different or higher standards than the amending amended listing rules. And FTSE Russell has some form here. You know, they currently apply, for example, a higher free float for non-UK incorporated companies versus UK incorporated companies. So I think I think that that index part of it is a, is a key part that we we don't know where they're going to come out yet. But if they do impose you know, a higher standard, you could end up almost with a, you know, a two tier system by the back door again. And I just wanted to go to, to a comment that you made upon the FCA announcement. So you said that it's very welcome. And while this will allow to form a dual class uh, share structure in the single listing category, uh, it would still be more limited in the UK than it is in the United States. So just I wanted just to, to ask if you could expand uh, on this point and just explain uh, what are the differences and, and the limitations. Yeah, so there's, as I mentioned up front, these dual class share structures are very, very common in the US. Almost half of the 2021 IPO for tech companies had one of these. And, and there are a few ways in which what the FCA is proposing differs from what we would typically expect to see in the US. So in the US for technology companies, usually the high vote shares are provided to all pre-IPO shareholders, and then the low vote shares get issued in the IPO and subsequently. So all pre-IPO shareholders, including VC investors, employees, et cetera, they can hold high vote shares. Whereas the FCA's proposal is that the high vote shares can only be held by someone who's a director of the company. Those shares would immediately convert to low vote shares if that holder ceases to be a director. So it's a much narrower number of people that can hold the high vote shares. And you know, I, I don't have a particular view as to whether that's the right thing or not, but what that will result in is high vote shares being concentrated in a single individual or a small group of individuals from day one post IPO, rather than being more broadly held with you know, the VCs selling down over time, which is what tends to happen in the US. In addition, the FCA is proposing a mandatory sunset provision of 10 years. So that means that the high vote shares would convert to low vote shares within 10 years. Personally, I think that's a, a perfectly reasonable position, but it is different to the US. In the US, there's no mandatory sunset provision. While sunsets are quite common, they're not always seen. And sometimes you see an ownership-based sunset, um, which is where the high vote shares will all convert to low vote shares, where they represent, say, 10% um, or less of the total share capital. So that's an alternative. And there's just, there's just more flexibility. Um, it's really about what the, the market will expect and, and, and you know, what, what investors are, are willing to accept on an IPO. So, so again, I, I think the FCA's position is reasonable there, but it is more restrictive than would be the case in the U.S. Thank you. That's that's uh, really fascinating. Thank you for um, explaining. Just before we wrap up, what do you think would be the next steps for for the FCA as part of this um, listing uh, rules reform process? So for these proposals, consultations open for public comment until the end of June. Um, there should be a further consultation paper in Q3, which would include the final draft rules, and then. 
It's not entirely clear, but we're expecting the rule changes are likely to come into effect in early 2024. I think that this is part of a package of things that the government and the FCA and others are looking at. So another key part of this is changes to the prospectus regime in the UK. At the moment, we still have the EU prospectus regulation applies in the UK as retained EU legislation, but the Treasury is, is setting out a new legislative regime and the FCA is launching a process of engaging and having dialogue in respect of the new rules that they put in place. And, and this is another important piece of this, as well as the eligibility and continuing obligations for listed companies. I think it's really important that we focus on how listed companies can do follow-on offerings, how they can issue more capital once they're listed and making those much less burdensome and expensive than they are at the moment where there's this requirement, you know, in a lot of cases to, to publish a prospectus that has to be approved by the regulator. Thank you very much, Claire, for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Companies are always looking to build stronger relationships with current and potentially new investors. If you are a public company, Pulse by public.com can help you build deeper relationships with your investors. Share your company narrative with innovative formats. Make investor information more discoverable. Reach retail investors where they're already engaged and much more. Pulse by public.com helps IR teams engage their retail shareholders, amplify company communications, and gain actionable insights into retail investor audiences. Visit public.com slash pulse to schedule a free demo. Welcome back. You're listening to The Ticker Podcast with me, Noemi Di Stefano. In this second part of the show, I'm joined by Robert Shore, Vice President of Investor Relations and Capital Markets at California headquartered gaming company, GAN. Robert, welcome to The Ticker. I think so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. Thank you for joining us. So to get started, if you could just uh, tell our listeners who maybe haven't heard of the company before about GAN and about your role at the firm. Uh, sure, happy to. Um, so GAN is a small cap listed NASDAQ company in the U.S. We're a sports betting and technology provider for internet gaming and sports betting. Um, we're a B2B technology platform to enable sports betting, internet gaming all throughout the U.S. Um, and for reference, in 2018, PASPO was repealed, which legalized uh, sports betting on the federal and a national basis throughout the United States. Then overseas, internationally, we're a B2C brand called CoolBet.com. Uh, you can wager on sports betting and internet gaming in Latin America, Northern Europe. We're now recently live in Mexico, too, as well. Okay. Just to start with, I wanted to talk to you about measures to attract and, and, and retain investors. So uh, from a company perspective and also as a VP of, of IR. So what measures are gone do you, do you take to attract and retain uh, shareholders? Yeah, let's take a more targeted approach. So it's kind of looking at, you know, different cities in the U.S. or international, what investors own, you know, peers of ours that don't own ours. That could be worth a visit with our CEO to say, you know, Boston, Denver, you know, we're kind of taking really more a targeted approach. Then one thing I think for GAN in terms of, you know, our offering is that we're a back-end technology offering in the U.S. again for sports and internet gaming. Mm-hmm. But I think investors, you know, they, they understand casinos and gaming, but they don't understand sometimes where we fit the tech, technology stack and the ecosystem for, for our offering. So a lot of it's kind of educational, just trying to simplify it as much as possible to make it digestible. This is what we do. This is how we how we make profit, you know, revenue. 
Um, and then again, taking a really more targeted approach to kind of attract investors that may be interested in the story. And if you could um, maybe share one or two tips with your peer IROs on uh, what has worked well for you, uh, maybe in terms of investor retention strategy, what would you what would you suggest them? You know, I think sometimes it's just it really comes down to really just handholding. If you look at the sports betting and internet gaming sector in the U.S., there's a big paradigm shift where I'm from being valued on revenue to even EBITDA profitability. And there's a big dip in the stocks at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for investors, it's really just sort of, you know, reassuring them that, hey, this is this is a long game. You know, there's only a few states now with internet gaming, you know, more sports betting, but it's we're still in the early innings here. So a lot of just kind of hand-holding and, you know, making sure, letting them know that management's doing all the right things to kind of, you know, get through this and it's early, early innings and stock volatility is stock volatility. But if you have the right right story, right strategy, and, you know, right management team will get through this. So I think a lot of it's just that, just retention, just, just picking up the phone and kind of reassuring investors and, you know, letting them know that you're doing all the right things, sort of blocking and tackling, really. Sure. And we will talk about that a little bit later in, you know, how to reassure investors in times of, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of, of concerns or when, when the market is, is dipping a little bit. Um, but um, I just wanted to, to also ask you about your shareholder base. And I think the first time we spoke, you mentioned that your, your shareholder base is made mainly of institutional investors. But um, I just wanted to ask you, are you trying to at this time or have you ever considered to diversify your uh, shareholder base and maybe uh, target retail shareholders uh, as well? And if yes, w- what steps are you taking to do so? Yes, we are. It's probably more social media, more things like, you know, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, Facebook. We're not doing as much as we, I'd like to, but we're, we're kind of, you know, migrating more in that direction. And sometimes it's just things like, you know, if you take a customer live in a certain state, you know, just kind of posting that and, you know, LinkedIn saying, you know, now we're now live. And I think investors just feel like up to speed in the story in that sense. And I think for retail, I think one thing that actually helps in, in GAN's favor, just really our sector in general, is I think a lot of retail investors are just internet gaming or sports betting fans in general. They tend yeah. to gravitate toward the sector. So it's been helpful, but we, we were doing some, but we need to do more, honestly, in terms of kind of attracting those investors. And I think it's probably more social media. It's kind of like the key outlet to, to attract them. Do you use platforms like TikTok or YouTube at this stage, or are you considering to? We're definitely considering it, and I'm I'm learning more about those platforms, but not as at this point. TikTok yeah. for for re, uh, for uh, shareholder targeting and and engagement is is a new one. Anyways, moving on. So, um, a couple of months ago, you you participated uh, in a Q and A with IR Magazine. The Q and A is on our website, irmagazine.com, and and you mentioned that uh, your professional background um uh, would would help you tackle challenges that you might face in in your role at Gun. Um, so. As, as you mentioned before, this is a, a challenging time for, for the industry. Uh, it, is, it is for Ghana as well. So w- what steps are you and the firm uh, taking at this time to reassure your investors? Yeah, you know, um, my background is really before this, I was a, a sell-side analyst for many years, really covering gaming before that I worked in gaming. So sometimes it's really just, you know, providing some context for the gaming industry in terms of, you know, if you look at the land-based industry, it's kind of grew slowly over time and kind of using that as an analogy to internet gaming, how that would grow, grow slowly over time too. So a lot of it's kind of just reverting back to my background in gaming or the sell side in terms of, you know, what investors are really focus on, key KPIs to drive the stock, and you know, making sure we're doing all those things to, you know, to help them kind of understand the story as best as possible. Um, again, sometimes it's just hand-holding. And sometimes for the background, it's really just, you know, if an investor asks a question that you can't answer in terms of, you know, we don't disclose that metric, 
sometimes you can say, well, this is public that, you know, in states and gaming report public market data, you can say the, the Nevada market is this big per public data. These are the five players. These are who we can work with. It kind of helped them kind of triangulate sizing of different metrics in terms of public data. So so just using that background and kind of pointing to different references instead of saying the answer is no, we don't disclose, kind of, you know, trying to use public data to kind of get them closer to, to an answer. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, that, that does make sense. And you mentioned the first time we spoke that you are a one-man uh, team in terms of, of IR. So I just wanted to ask you about um, the relationship that you have with your executive team and other stakeholders of the company and how uh, you work with them to, to ensure that the company messaging and and you know the, the message you deliver to investors who are doing any ending calls or annual general meetings is unison so to speak yeah i, I think in a sense and now this is this probably is for other small cap companies in general that you know i kind of wear a lot of hats here i'm part of the executive leadership team my capital markets involved in fpna and kind of a lot of functions besides out, outside besides just ir where larger companies i think ir is sort of just you know is just sort of focused on ir which is great but I think one advantage of being involved in kind of all aspects is that you really sort of understand the business. You're working with the business leaders. You know, it, it's really, you kind of, you're so ingrained in the business that it allows to sort of just up-level it for the market because you're sort of already in the weeds of the information. So I think that's that's really helpful. And then, you know, also in our, in terms of, if you get an investor question, you don't, you don't know, you know, there's so many leaders, you know, you kind of reach out to for the answer. If it's a question on our international operations in Latin America, it's calling this person and Distilling that to a message, if it's a question on U.S., you know, internet gaming, you know, this is the leader here, and it's just kind of kind of know who to call internally or who to reach out to internally and kind of get the answers for investors. And then in terms of you know the executive leadership team is sort of just you know working with with management to kind of get the broader strategy you know out there. And sort of the way I view earnings calls and and IR in general is that you know the strategy is sort of where the company wants to be in three to five years and. Earnings calls and IR essentially is just that, you know, here's proof points that run the, the right way to that path. So it should all be kind of, I think, one parallel path in terms of the leadership strategy and IR should sort of all, all be in one, um, essentially. And the IR stories are sort of that we're doing the right things to kind of tackle our strategy and get the, the finish line. Okay. And uh, I just had a question about handling negative news. What I mean by that is, you know, usually when there is a, an industry that is undergoing a tough time, um, media <laughs> go heavy on them uh this is not specifically about any negative reports on gun but in general for uh you know for companies who are in the same industry as, as your company maybe you have any tips and uh, how to handle that negative coverage and you know should investors and ask questions about it during any of, of the calls or presentations i think from an investor perspective it's really just you know always being able to you know, be available, you know, if they want to do a call, do a call, you know, sometimes in terms of the stock movement, it's sort of just explained that, you know, the sector went from here to here and, you know, we're doing all the right things. And, you know, it's sort of just sometimes hearing out their frustration. So as investors, I found that sometimes they just like to vent, you kind of let them vent for five or 10 minutes and then you kind of, you know, go into the story. And then, you know, I think as long as, as you're doing everything you can as a company, the kind of maximum shareholder value, I, I think they're generally, you know, okay and will stay along for the ride. Um, but again, it's really just kind of being, you know, transparent, being up at the phone whenever they, they call. And they've always found that a personal call or a video call is always better for investors. I think it's just that kind of one-on-one interaction is always, 
always beneficial. That's a great answer. Thank you. And just to go back to to that Q and A that we mentioned, there was a, a questions about you know your your company's um, uh, IR program and uh, in in 2023, and you mentioned that um, you would focus on improving the uh, visibility for your investment story. I just wanted to ask if you could please expand on that and and talk how you are improving that visibility in practice. Yeah, so a little bit of a nuance there is that in our fourth quarter, we actually announced a strategic review of the business, which we publicly announced again, the company. So given that we're in that sort of period, we're not doing as much proactive outreach. Um, once that's wrapped up, then we'll kind of revert back to more proactive outreach. But in terms of the proactive outreach, it's really just sort of, you know, kind of most of the basic things, I'd say kind of, you know, industry conferences, investor conferences. I think teach index are very helpful, particularly for business like ours, again, given that it's not so complicated, but, you know, I think investors want to understand, you know, what what we're providing in the U.S. terms of technology, how we fit into kind of the ecosystem of sports billionaire or gaming, how we make money. So I think kind of being able to kind of distill those is as simply as possible and still being transparently honest. I, I think that's that's kind of the key thing is, just, you know, investors want to, if you're at a, a PM and you're looking at, you know, 60 companies across 10 sectors, you know, it's really kind of, this is what we do in sports manager gaming. This is how we make money. And I think that really helps. Then obviously there's a next step we can go in more into the model in detail, but I think kind of a quick summary of what, what the company does and how it operates is always very beneficial. And just before we, we wrap up, just had a general question, not about, not industry specific, but market capitalization specific. So what, what would you say in terms of IR are the main challenges at small caps this year in general, in the long term? Yeah, I'd say one, it's tough to get, you know, sell side coverage, say from the larger traditional banks. Sometimes they have a mandate in terms of, you know, market cap. Um, same thing with, I think, more larger kind of national media houses. They, they usually have a market cap. So it is challenging in that perspective. I think you kind of have to, again, do more of a targeted approach. You kind of think of this investor kind of plays in the small cap, small cap area. He owns some peers or they she owns some peers and kind of really do a more targeted approach. But I think I think sell side coverage from big banks is, is a challenge. And so is kind of broader national media attention as a small cap company. So I think, it, again, it's taking more of a targeted, nuanced approach to kind of you know, getting the right reporters to kind of, you know, see your press release or, you know, really kind of focusing on key investors that will actually, you know, invest in, in this in this space and kind of this market capitalization. Okay. And uh, lastly, then, what does the, the future look like for, uh, for GAN in terms of strategy, in terms of IR, in terms of like looking six months, one year down the line? I think it looks bright. I mean, I, I think one thing, again, I mentioned that, again, there's, the internet gaming and, and sports betting story in the U.S. is, is really just kind of low, rolling out. So we're still in the early innings. I think we're doing all the right things in terms of getting the team right, uh, getting the cost structure right, having the right product offering. So I definitely think it looks bright. And internationally, and uh, with CoolBet.com, you know, there's a lot of growth in Latin America where there, there are you know key markets there, including Mexico now, and uh, that market's growing as well. So I, th- I think the future is definitely bright. I think we're doing the right things. Best of luck with everything and thank you for uh, joining us uh, on the show today. Thanks for having me, I really appreciate it. IO Magazine's next Think Tank event is just around the corner, taking place in London on June 22nd at the Bank of America offices. This event, exclusively for senior IO officers, offers a unique opportunity to attendees to network, debate and dissect burning matters on top of IO agendas today. Industry leaders will discuss IR in a polycrisis, how to respond to converging macro challenges, ways to communicate long-term resilience to shareholders, practical tips for enhancing ESG disclosures in line with evolving shareholder expectations, 
and setting your investor relations team up for success in today's environment. Our unique think tank format consists of panel discussions followed by interactive roundtable sessions, allowing you to share experiences and learn from top-rated IR professionals. More information about the event is available at irmagazine.com forward slash EuroThinkTank. Welcome to IR Pulse, the segment where we talk to IROs, analysts and other executives about the evolution of IR. This month, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show Katie Perry, GM of IR Innovation at Public.com. Hi, Katie. Welcome back to the ticker. Hi, it's great to be here again. Great to have you on the show. So we are here to discuss some of the uh, developments and your research and your insights at Public. You've you've had a lot of conversations with higher rows and their agencies about the impact of retail shareholders on their workflows. So let me ask you, what have been some of the trends you have been picking up on lately? There's really three uh, core buckets of trends that we've been seeing. The first is uh, IROs starting to think more like marketers. The second is they're identifying new skill requirements to add to their teams. And the third is navigating how to balance their time and resources. So I can go into detail for each of those. Um, On the first point, thinking like marketers, this really means kind of when it comes to retail shareholders, Thinking of ways to actually reach that audience in a relevant way in the places where they're spending time, it's obviously a much different sort of challenge versus reaching uh, institutional side of the house for IR. And so some ways um, IROs are doing this are thinking through ways to develop social content, sharing updates on social media that is going to resonate with your retail shareholders. Another way is uh, thinking through distribution strategy. So if retail shareholders might not be checking back on your website every few days, how can you get that information to them? I've seen some great examples of IR newsletters that that sort of summarize and recap updates over time. And the other is thinking about expanding how they view metrics. Obviously, uh, share price is is the key metric, but when it comes to retail shareholders, sometimes it's a longer play. There's more time that goes into building that relationship. So in addition to the typical IR metrics that you might be tracking, they're starting to think about kind of awareness metrics, uh, retention metrics, and things that are more akin to how marketers would measure. And building from that on the new skill requirements, obviously, if they're starting to think more like their colleagues, maybe on the marketing side, They're thinking of adding people that are more content focused to their teams. We had one partner actually hired a team member with a background in digital content production, so video, multimedia content. We had another partner who recently hired a full-time person who's just focused on retail IR, um, which seems to be a a new development among uh, companies, especially those with large bases of shareholders on the retail side. And the last thing is just how to navigate balancing time and resources. I think everyone I've been talking to, and this will probably relate to a lot of people listening, is there seems to be expanded things to do and expanded strategies to deploy with very lean teams. And so thinking around ways to perhaps use next uh, new technologies like chat GPT or find ways to alleviate some of that friction that, that they face when they need to think about separate strategies for different audiences. So 
those are the three key things I've been seeing. That's really interesting. Thanks, Katie. And just to, to dive a little bit deeper in uh, how to exemplify uh, things. Uh, so are there any specific IR case studies that you have come across lately that uh, you think help make uh, strong retail IR approaches simpler? Yeah, I've seen a few really great examples that I think a lot of IR teams can learn from and maybe uh, use the similar playbook. One is on the social content front. Um, if you go to Twitter and look up the Moneyline Investor Relations handle, it's Moneyline IR, they've been doing a really great job of translating what's in their news releases, their earnings releases into really compelling social content. So instead of just tweeting out a link and saying, hey, we just announced earnings, They're actually building threads, building in visuals. They've also included sort of tune-in reminders, uh, similar to how a, a TV handle might do, of reminding people when the earnings call is happening. So I think they've been doing a great job on that front. If you spend any time on TikTok, definitely check out what AMD is doing. Their corporate TikTok, which is linked very clearly on their IR website, does mm -hmm. a really good job of showcasing the products, how they work. And it give, it goes beyond IR, but it's a really great asset for just introducing people to the company overall. And another great example is Snap. Uh, they have a really great uh, monthly investor newsletter. It doesn't involve a lot of added content creation. They're essentially just summarizing any announcements they make, press hits, product updates. And it's a great way to just create a moment where you're recapping everything together. And it gives you some space to sort of build that narrative with all of those supporting points. So I think those three are, are great examples and ones that you know most IR teams would be able to, to adopt without a lot of uh, time and resources. Definitely, thank you. And uh, at Public, you've had uh, an interesting view into behaviors and attitudes of retail shareholders. We have discussed this in previous episodes of The Ticker, but since you last came on the show, what, what have been some of the key trends that issuers should know about uh, that maybe have changed or uh, developed? A couple of the trends we're seeing among our audience, and we have 3 million users, so pretty pretty good viewpoint of what's going on. Um, the first is continued focus on fundamentals. So story stocks still have a place, they still resonate, but in addition to that, investors are really digging deeper into performance. Um, and so I think sometimes people think, oh, retail investors don't care about the financial performance, but they're really digging into these deeper after the volatility we've been seeing. Uh, the second one is international stocks. So on public, we actually just added uh, OTC stocks for international companies, Nintendo, Volvo, LVMH. Uh, the American audience knows these, these companies well, and although it's an international company, they're also kind of gravitating towards that, that side of things. We've also seen on the ETF side a lot of momentum um, in emerging market and international ETFs. Also on ETFs, what's been really interesting, and I think this was reported in the journal a couple of weeks ago, is that actively managed funds are, are becoming more popular. So a lot of retail investors became acquainted with ETFs as, as a product in the volatility. Maybe they started with index funds and then they added some thematics, and now they're using these as a tool to do interesting things based on their goals. There's one ETF that mimics uh, the, the strategies of hedge funds, for example, and these are becoming more and more popular among retail investors. And then the third thing is they're really interested in following uh, not just news about stocks and the things they're interested in, but also macroeconomic news, policy updates, and how all these things ladder into 
their portfolio, their personal finance. So we've had a program running for the last month or so with a company called A Starting Point. And they've been working with us on content updates, breaking down, you know, the history of the Fed, um, Dodd-Frank policy, a lot of the U.S.-based sort of financial policies that would be very relevant to investors and give them context around what's going on. Um, we had a really, a really, really uh, high engagement piece go out a couple of weeks ago on breaking down what the debt ceiling is. These are things people see and hear every day and they want to know what is the, the trickle down effect on them. So I think those are those are the big things. I think the headline is um, they continue to be more and more disciplined and more and more focused on research. And so for IR teams, that means finding ways to get that content to that audience in a way that's gonna resonate. And I think the money line example I referenced is a great example of that. Same content as they're already preparing, it's just slightly translated for the audience. Great, thank you. And as, as you mentioned, um, on public, uh, apart from stocks and e ETFs, you you also offer alternative assets and crypto is one of those. Just uh, just wanted to ask you, are you noticing any trends with, with crypto in particular? The trends are very similar to what we're seeing with stocks and ETFs. And that's that, mm -hmm. again, there's that greater focus on, on fundamentals. So wanting to understand the actual application of the crypto, how, how those applications could grow and scale over time. So that's what the conversations we see are about. The people that really believe in crypto as a utility and, and something that has real world applications down the line are still very interested in this space. What we're seeing is the, the level of sophistication growing and the interest going more from whatever's buzzing on Twitter or Reddit or whatnot to, okay, I really want to understand what these cryptos are, what their applications are and make decisions from there. And I think the takeaway is that retail investors view investments holistically within a single portfolio. So they're looking at your company or your stock alongside Ethereum or alongside treasury bills. Um, and so they really see it as one thing. Um, and so the takeaway there is there's there's a greater need to kind of stand out and build that story because you're not just competing against stocks similar to yours or ETFs, but the comprehensive portfolio that, that people are building. Thank you so much, Katie, for being with us today. We will have to leave it there, but definitely fascinating and topical insights. We look forward to welcoming you back on the podcast soon. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Ticker Podcast, brought to you by IR Magazine, in partnership with our sponsor, Pulse by Public.com. Huge thanks for their support. You can learn more about Pulse at Public.com forward slash Pulse. Thanks also to everyone who took the time of being with us today. For our listeners, if you enjoyed the show, make sure you like and subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, thanks for listening.